A federal judge sets a trial date for former President Donald Trump on charges he tried to subvert the 2020 election results. The date is set for March 4th, the day before the Super Tuesday primary. Today is Monday, August 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, police in North Carolina are searching for an armed and dangerous suspect at UNC Chapel Hill. Political polarization in the U.S. has caused many people not to trust authority figures, including health care providers. Through the pandemic, we've added this issue of mistrust in the very professionals that for centuries we've valued as its source of information. How the distrust is undermining health care coming up. Also, how climate change is making poison ivy grow faster, bigger, and scratchier. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A major hurricane could hit the Tampa Bay area of Florida by midweek. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports Tropical Storm Idalia is expected to strengthen overnight as it moves across the Gulf of Mexico. Emergency officials say evacuations are underway for barrier islands and low-lying areas along the Florida Gulf Coast. Governor Ron DeSantis says Idalia is expected to rapidly intensify. We are bracing for a major hurricane impact, Category 3 plus. Uh, hopefully uh, it doesn't get much worse than a Category 3, but, but the reality is, is uh, you got basically clear sailing for this thing. Uh, you've got waters uh, that are warm, um, and there's not really going to be much uh, to slow it down. A major threat will be dangerous storm surge over a wide swath of the Gulf Coast, stretching from Florida's Big Bend to the Tampa Bay region. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. A federal judge says former President Donald Trump will go to trial in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 2024, rejecting Trump's request for a two-year delay. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. Judge Tanya Chutkin says she understands Trump's lawyers need time to prepare for the landmark case against a former president. But she says waiting for years after the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021, doesn't serve the public interest. The judge says Trump has known for a year about the investigation into alleged interference in the 2020 election. She set trial for March 4, 2024, shortly before the Super Tuesday primaries. The judge says she consulted with a different jurist in New York who'd been scheduled to oversee a separate hush money case against Trump for later that month. Defense lawyers for Trump say the trial date will hurt his rights to due process. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Spanish prosecutors have opened an investigation into the president of the country's soccer federation, Luis Rubiales. He could face criminal charges for kissing a player after Spain's national team won the Women's World Cup a week ago. Alan Ruiz Terol has more. Prosecutors will look into whether Luis Rubiales committed a crime when he kissed the Spanish player Jenny Hermoso on the lips during the World Cup award ceremony. Despite public outcry, Rubiales has refused to step down and threaten legal action against his critics. This prompted the entire World Cup winning squad to abandon the national team until a change of leadership. The International Soccer Federation, FIFA, has suspended Rubiales for 90 days. Alan Ruiz Chero reporting. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo met with Chinese officials today in Beijing. She says the two nations have agreed to exchange information on U.S. export controls. China's complained about security-related limits on access to processor chips and other American technology. The Dow up 213. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council will consider an ordinance that bans tents from the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu filed the ordinance today. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Mayor Wu says the ordinance is needed because tents are shielding criminal activity in the Mass and Cass area. Her ordinance would require notice that temporary structures on public property would have to be removed within 48 hours. It also says affected individuals would be offered shelter space, transportation to services, and storage for their belongings. Boston police would be permitted to remove the tents after that and could issue citations or fine those who do not comply or put up their tents elsewhere. The Boston City Council takes up the ordinance Wednesday and has 60 days to decide whether to approve it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The ACLU of Massachusetts says it's monitoring the situation to make sure people's constitutional rights are not violated if the ordinance does pass. The group says everyone deserves to be safe and treated with humanity, regardless of their housing situation. The big move has begun as students and their furniture arrive in the Boston area for the new college year, and that has the state warning movers of what's called storrowing. That's when a truck driver finds out the hard way that the bridges on storrow and memorial drives are too low for them, and the truck gets stuck. Jeff Parenti of the state's Department of Conservation and Recreation was on hand when a new type of cars-only sign was installed today at Mugar Way at the intersection of Mount Vernon Street off Storrow Drive. The sign has a rubber part hanging from the bottom designed to be a warning for the errant driver. The new sign is aluminum and heavier, so I think it will make a, more in, a bigger impact on the, on the top of the truck. We'll get the driver's attention and hopefully the driver will understand that they're entering a roadway with low clearance. Parenti says the state has put up multiple signs warning drivers of low clearance bridges and overpasses. The MBTA is making several changes to regular service next month to allow for repairs to be done. Shuttle buses will replace red line trains between North Quincy and Braintree several evenings in September. Shuttles will also replace commuter rail trains between South Station and Braintree on several dates next month. Additional changes to both subway and commuter rail service are listed on the MBTA's website. 75 degrees, been a nice day today. Should fall to the low 60s overnight tonight with clouds and some fog around. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds, chance of showers, breezy. Temperatures in the mid-70s once again. Again, 75 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Baltimore. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, March 4th, 2024. That is the date a federal judge has chosen for former President Trump's trial in Washington. It's related to the charges surrounding his attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. And NPR's Jacqueline Diaz is here to tell us more. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey. Okay, so walk us through what happened today. So as you said, Judge Tanya Chutkin chose March 4th, 2024 as the start of Trump's trial in Washington, D.C. Now, this is a separate case from the ones happening in New York, Florida and Georgia. Right. Chutkin chose this date despite a strong push by Trump's attorney to get this trial pushed back all the way to 2026. That's well after the presidential election. Mm -hmm. But the judge wasn't buying it. According to NPR's Kerry Johnson, who was at the hearing, Trump's attorney John Loro got heated in his attempt to get the judge to delay the trial. 
Laurel said that the trial date was inconsistent with Trump's right to due process, but the judge said she was going to treat Trump just like every other defendant. Uh, prosecutors wanted to see a January 2nd, 2024 start date. Loro did tip his hand as to the next possible steps he may take for this case. He hinted at a number of legal motions he plans to make, including a motion to dismiss the whole indictment. Okay. There are several indictments currently against former President Trump. Remind us of the charges in this indictment. So Trump has pleaded not guilty to four charges. Prosecutors allege that Trump helped orchestrate a plan to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election results. This conspiracy turned violent on January 6, 2021, when rioters took over the U.S. Capitol. His official charges include conspiracy to defraud the United States and conspiracy against rights for allegedly trying to disenfranchise American voters by trying to overturn the 2020 election. Trump and his allies continue to call these charges in every other criminal case against him, election interference and fraud. And just to remind everyone, I mean, Trump is facing three other possible criminal trials in three separate states, right? New York, Georgia and Florida and a separate civil trial also in New York that he has on the docket for next year. How does this fourth criminal case in Washington, D.C. fit into that overall timeline? So if the dates for this D.C. trial and Trump's other cases hold up, then he is in for a hectic 2024 for several reasons. He is also, of course, in the middle of a presidential election, and he's the Republican frontrunner. So Trump will be balancing his right to sit for all these trials with his presidential campaign. Now, in a statement today, a Trump spokesperson said, setting a trial date for the day before Super Tuesday shows the Biden regime is no longer hiding its nakedly political motivations. Now, get your calendar out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On October 3rd in New York, Trump Uh will face a trial for the civil lawsuit filed by State Attorney General Letitia James. This is over claims that Trump and his company's executive team committed fraud by inflating his net worth by billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Later that month, if, this, if the date doesn't change, Trump could face his first criminal trial in Georgia. That case is tied to his and his 18 co-defendants' attempts to overturn the election results in that state. And now going into 2024, on January 15th, it's the Iowa caucuses. Right. Later that month, Trump's second civil trial in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit will start. Okay. And the D.C. trial set for March 4th, 2024. That was NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you. Simone Biles is still the GOAT. That is, the greatest of all time. The gymnastics star won her eighth U.S. championship last night. That is a record. Ten years after she first ascended to the top of her sport as a teenage prodigy. This win comes after Biles stepped back from the sport in the middle of the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, citing a need to focus on her mental health. This year, she's back as strong as ever. Kimone Felix is here. She's written about Simone Biles for The Cut. Hey, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so Simone Biles winning her eighth U.S. championship. That is a record, and we should just point out, Biles is the first American gymnast of any gender to do so. Just how big of a deal is this? This is a huge deal, especially following her removing herself from the sport after a really harrowing trial um, up against her abuser and USA Gymnastics. 
And just to clarify here, you were talking about the fact that in 2018, Simone Biles revealed that she had been sexually abused by former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, and she testified to a Senate committee in 2021 about that abuse, right? Yes. It means a lot to see her remove herself and then return again on top of her game, continuing to dominate the arena. It goes to show that a little bit of self-care can go a really long way. What stood out to you about her performance over the weekend to the degree that you were able to see some of it? I was most surprised by her near-perfect landing of the Yurchenko double pike, which is a vault so difficult that no other woman has done it and very few men try. She continues to push herself in a way that is inspiring um, and bewildering, goes to show that she is nowhere near retirement. She has a lot more to give, and she's ready to keep pushing. Yeah, I mean, when you wrote about Simone Biles back in 2021 for The Cut, that was after a dangerous mental block, which is known in gymnastics as the Twisties, forced her to withdraw from several events at the Tokyo Olympics that year. And I'm curious, what stood out to you in your conversations with her then about how she thought about herself, how she thought about her sport? You could tell that she was really injured, that there was something going on inside that she didn't even really have the ability to articulate, something that is communicated through affect, through the way that uh, her body sat in the chair, through the way that she was sometimes unable to look at me as she recalled some of the worst moments of her life. And anyone who is incredibly ambitious, who has a sport or a skill or a craft that they care a lot about, knows the pain that comes with feeling like you're not able to show up as your full self within your work because of something that happened to you that was not your fault, that you didn't have control over. I mean, you spent quite a bit of time immersed in her world and getting to know Simone Biles for that profile back in 2021. What have you been thinking about in the years since and specifically while watching her return to competition this year? I've been thinking a lot about that very key moment towards the end of the profile where her resolve breaks and she starts to cry a little bit. To me, that was one of the bravest moments um, and one of the most powerful moments that we spent together because it showed that she was both in touch with her emotions and that she was willing to be vulnerable with the public to show them just how she'd been affected by all of this. It's made me really invest in vulnerability in my own practices, Mm -hmm. in considering that what it means to be good or successful or competitive actually means that you are the most vulnerable with yourself and with the people around you while still holding on to that competitive resolve that allows you to get up and really go for it every day. Given what we saw from Simone Biles over the weekend, do you think it's likely that we're going to see her at the Olympics again in Paris in 2024? I think it's incredibly likely. She is on top of her game. She seems to feel a lot more confident in her body, feels a lot more confident in the air. And I think she would love an opportunity to go back to the Olympics while being able to actually revel in that safeness in her body and to know that when she goes up for the competition that she'll actually be able to land Kimone Felix telling us about Simone Biles after she's won her record-breaking 8th U.S. All-Around Gymnastics Championship. Kimone, thank you so much. 
Thank you. And now to my unsung hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Lynn Fainsilber-Katz. One day in 2022, she went to the beach. She was carrying a lot of things and was feeling weighed down. I had a chair and a beach umbrella and a cooler. It was just really hard to climb over all the rocks, and I was struggling. I got to one part that I just paused because it was a big step down, and I was a little bit off-center because of all the things I was carrying. And as I stood there, a young, kind of 30-something-year-old man came over to me and said, can I help you? And I said, sure. (laughs) And he took some of the things I was carrying and gave me his hand and helped me come down that stair. And I was just so grateful. And I think that's because, you know, as I age, I'm feeling a little bit more vulnerable and not as strong and able to do the things that I want to do. And so, you know, at that moment, I thought maybe this is not something I can do anymore beyond my own doing it. And, you know, having that kind of help and support at just that right moment sort of felt like I can continue in the life that I want to have that I've had and want to continue to have and you know even if it's hard that there'll be people there if you feel like there'll be somebody there who will help then you can push the limits a little more and you can maintain the joy that you want to maintain in your life so that's why I'm grateful to him because he helped me maintain that joy Lynn Fain Silberkatz lives in Seattle, Washington. She's also the mom of Hidden Brain producer Ryan Katz, who recorded this interview with her. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Still to come in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, why so many Americans don't trust health care providers and how that's giving old diseases a new chance. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Wall Street recovered some of its losses earlier this month. The Dow and S&P today gained more than six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up more than eight-tenths of a percent. CVS Health says it's laying off 140 employees in the state in October. The Boston Business Journal reports 76 workers in Boston and 64 in Wellesley will be let go. 5,000 employees will be laid off across the company. CVS says the layoffs are part of its restructuring plan to refocus on areas including health services and technology. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Arts Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for fall at newartcenter.org. 
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Clouds and sunshine both this afternoon into this evening. Then lots of clouds around overnight. Tonight should be foggy. Temperatures in the low 60s. For tomorrow, mainly cloudy. Some showers around should be in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The United Nations is on a tight timeline to pull all of its peacekeepers out of Mali by the end of this year, at a time when ISIS and other terrorist groups expand their control over parts of the country. There's also concern that Mali's government is relying more on Russian mercenaries. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. UN Special Representative for Mali, El Ghassim Wan, has a difficult task. He has to shut down a large and expensive UN peacekeeping operation, even as terrorist groups gain ground. This is a very complex undertaking. The mission was built over a period of 10 years, and we have to close it in six months. Uh, And Mali, as you know, is landlocked, infrastructure is limited, and insecurity is He says he's been coordinating the drawdown with authorities in Mali, who will now have to take the lead in protecting civilians. A recent U.N. report paints a bleak picture of the situation on the ground, though. It says the country remains in political turmoil, while ISIS and other terrorist groups have nearly doubled the territory they control in just the last year. The U.N. panel of experts also says there's been widespread sexual violence by Mali's armed forces and their foreign partners. That includes Russian mercenaries. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield expressed alarm about that, saying it was a mistake for Mali's transitional government to close down the U.N. mission known as MINUSMA. MINUSMA's withdrawal limits the ability of the international community to protect civilians from the predations of Wagner, whose activities contribute to greater insecurity in the country. Wagner is the Russian mercenary group whose leader was killed in a plane crash in Russia last week. It's been implicated in deadly attacks on civilians in Mali. Mali's transitional government, which came to power after a coup, has leaned heavily on them after the departure of French forces last year. Russia's ambassador, Dmitry Polyansky, says he knows Russia's partnership with Mali keeps Western powers up at night. Speaking through an interpreter, he accused some in the West of what he called neo-colonial approaches. So we should pay no heed to their colonial phantom pains. Russia, for its part, will continue to provide Mali and other interested African partners with comprehensive assistance on a bilateral, equal, and mutually respectful basis. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is wary about Russia's influence in the region and says the people of Mali deserve peace. If war were to break out, it would again unleash unspeakable, unthinkable 
devastation on the Malian people who have already endured so much needless suffering. And she says it would open the doors to ISIS and other terrorist groups to spread their influence in the region. She calls that a recipe for disaster. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is WBUR. Poison ivy is expected to be one of the big winners as the climate changes. The dreaded three-leafed vine is growing faster, bigger, and becoming even more toxic. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel reports that some New Englanders are noticing the change. So here I'm just using two garden forks, sticking them in, in the ground. It's a slow aerobic kind of exercise. Peter Barron's job is removing poison ivy, and his promise is he'll do it with no chemicals. His clients know him by his nickname, Pesky Pete. Today he's working in a wooded backyard in Harvard, Massachusetts, using just his hands, a few tools, and gloves that go up over his elbows. Someone said to me, cowbirthing birthing gloves. I was like, oh yeah, cowbirthing birthing gloves, that's what I'll call them from now on. Even with the gloves, Pesky Pete says he gets that itchy, blistering rash about 10 times a year. But unlike most, he loves this plant. Every year I always take pictures of the poison ivy as it's blooming. Three bitty, red, shiny leaves. When I first started, it was May 10th or May 11th. And I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to do this. 14 years later, he says the season starts almost a month earlier. In 2023, my first sightings of poison ivy was on April 18th. His guess is that warmer weather explains the shift. Scientists have also noticed changes. One team in the 1990s turned the woods into their laboratory. They built towers that could pump carbon dioxide into the air. Around large circular forest plots, they pumped in enough of the gas to simulate what they thought 2050 would be like. Sort of a cylinder of the future is the way I like to call it. William Schlesinger is an emeritus professor at Duke University. He says the plants grew faster with more CO2, since plants essentially use the gas as food. But poison ivy was the speediest of all, growing 70% faster than without the extra carbon dioxide. Oh, it's, it was the max. It, it topped uh, the growth of everything else. That's not all. The researchers discovered the poison ivy became more toxic and the individual leaves got bigger with more CO2. Now, Jackie Mohan, an ecologist at the University of Georgia, is looking at how poison ivy responds to warmer soil. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. She says it's partly because a warmth-loving fungus helps feed poison ivy roots. Plus, the vines don't need a sturdy trunk or branches. They can put all their energy into getting bigger. Bigger and nastier. But is this happening out in nature right now? Mohan and Schlesinger say they think so, but... It's a remarkably understudied species. It's a nasty plant to work on. In the suburbs west of Boston, Dr. Lewis Kushner sees just how miserable it can be. Some people will have a tremendous allergic reaction to poison ivy, and others just don't seem to mount any allergic reaction at all. He works with 10 dermatologists. Every one of us sees it every week. Uh, And I mean the kind of cases where people can't sleep and are covered with blisters. The kind of poison ivy that takes people to the emergency rooms, that has been getting more common. He suspects that's due to the pandemic nudging people into their gardens and onto trails. 
In the town of Lincoln, Gwyn Loud has noticed the hikers and the poison ivy. Loud is on the board of the Lincoln Land Conservation Trust. The leaf edges are smooth and it's got one center vein. With gloves on, she pulls a bit of poison ivy, now deep green since it's later in the summer. So here's some right here. Are you able to quantify how much it's grown in the 55 years you've lived here? There is a lot more all over the place. And she's noticed another change, too. The leaves can be the size of a book. Look at these huge leaves down here. Huge! Loud says she wishes there was hard data, but from what she's seeing, it's not good news for the roughly 80% of people who are allergic to poison ivy. And scientists worry it could disrupt the delicate balance in the forest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. You can test your skill at identifying poison ivy with our poison ivy quiz. It's at WBUR.org. And we'll have more stories on the consequences of the changing climate in New England all this week here on All Things Considered and on WBUR's Morning Edition. So listen again tomorrow. skies overnight, foggy again, down in the low 60s. Tomorrow should start up pretty much as today did. Patchy fog, some light rain. Clouds should last the day tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. Wednesday, not too much of a change. Gray skies, a little closer to 80 degrees. Brighter skies could be ahead for Thursday with highs in the 70s. Coming to City Space Saturday, September 9th, three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky for a special evening of poetry featuring jazz performances. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. It's 4.30. There's a major effort to fully decriminalize sex work in the United States, but many former sex workers are pushing back. This idea that it's her body, her choice, you know, she has power and autonomy in the sex trade is a, is a fallacy. Advocates have differing opinions, but all agree that the status quo isn't working. Should the law be changed, and how? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Florida residents are being urged to leave their homes in low-lying areas along the Gulf Coast ahead of a major hurricane expected on Wednesday. Forecasters predict the tropical storm Idalia will strengthen to a Category 3 storm when it makes landfall, the first storm to hit the area this hurricane season. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says federal help is already on the way. Earlier today, the president spoke to Governor DeSantis and told him he quickly approved the emergency declaration for Florida. The president also expressed the administration's full commitment and support to Florida. At the president's direction, FEMA has deployed two incident management teams to Tallahassee and has one in Atlanta ready to pivot as needed. Florida's governor has declared a state of emergency in 46 counties. The storm is currently thrashing Cuba with heavy rains, which 
Much like Florida is still recovering from the impact and destruction leveled by Hurricane Ian a year ago. Jobs and trade are in the financial spotlight this week. NPR's Scott Horsley tells us investors will be on the lookout for key information from the Labor Department. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues are keeping a close eye on the job market as they try to decide whether more interest rate hikes will be needed to curb inflation. The Labor Department sets report on job openings and turnover tomorrow. On Friday, we'll learn how many jobs U.S. employers added in August. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in China this week. Raimondo says she and her Chinese counterpart have agreed to exchange information about U.S. export controls, which have been a source of friction in the trans-Pacific trade relationship. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Well, on Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board today. The Dow gained 213 points. The Nasdaq added 114. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A key member of the Healy administration has submitted her resignation just seven months after starting the job. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Transportation Secretary Gina Fiendaka will step down on September 11th. In a statement, Governor Healy wished her well in her future endeavors. She said the secretary hit the ground running and delivered on many of the administration's key transportation priorities. No reason for Fiendaka's departure was given. Fiendaka had long served as commissioner of Boston's Transportation Department and most recently oversaw mobility initiatives in Austin, Texas. Transportation Undersecretary Monica Tibbetts-Nutt will serve as acting secretary. The change comes at a crucial time as the administration wrestles with countless issues affecting the MBTA. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The cold case known as the Lady of the Dunes is now closed. That's according to the Cape and Islands District Attorney today. The mutilated body of Ruth Marie Terry was found in the Provincetown Dunes in July of 1974. The body was identified last October using DNA analysis. The analysis also connected her late husband to the case. He died in 2002. Investigators now say definitively that he was responsible for Terry's death. Framingham is facing a major bus driver shortage as students head back to school this week. Superintendent Robert Tremblay told WBUR's Radio Boston that the school district is down 20 drivers, but he says elementary school students who live more than two miles from school will still be guaranteed a ride. So at this point, we're able to provide for all of our eligible riders under the law and under our policy, but we're not able to provide that level of customer service that we have a long tradition of providing, and that's what's disappointing. Tremblay says bus provider North Reading Terminal has been trying to recruit more drivers, but those efforts are falling short. He says the school district is working with Framingham's regional transit network to bus about 100 students to school for now. And a leatherback sea turtle has been rescued off the coast of Cape Cod. A team from the Center for Coastal Studies found the 400-pound animal wrapped in fishing gear yesterday off the coast of Wellfleet. They freed it and released it back into the ocean. Crews estimated it had been tangled for weeks. In the forecast, starting to see more clouds around now. Look for an overcast sky tonight. Should be down in the low 60s. And for tomorrow, lots of clouds around. Showers, breezy, comfortable, though. Temperatures in the mid-70s, which is where they are now. 75 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Has sharp political polarization cost lives in the U.S.? Well, a lack of trust in government during the pandemic arguably led to hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, healthcare workers are still grappling with this lack of trust. In Fredonia, Kansas, a remote town of about 2,000, Dr. Jennifer Bacani McKenney is treating Madeline Rindle, a bright-eyed older woman with a big, fresh scar on her knee. Let's start with your poor knee. I see that thing. Actually, they said I'm doing really good. Okay. But they worked me out today in PT, and they said, you need to get some pain pills. It's a friendly, empathetic exchange. But my other thing is, I don't want to go all the way to Walgreens. The closest, Walgreens, is 30 miles away. If the hospital in Fredonia weren't here, Rindle would be driving at least that far for basic health care. That's typical in rural parts of the country, and it's likely to get worse. The Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform figures that about a third of rural hospitals face closing this decade. But during the pandemic, many rural residents turned on their hometown doctors, even Dr. McKinney. That was the first time in my career that I had people say, no, we don't believe you. At a county commission meeting in the fall of 2020, People like Patty Timmons and Donovan Hutchinson framed McKinney's mask and social distancing recommendations as part of a dark conspiracy. Once our freedom of choice is taken, they will come after more. After our guns, after our kids, is this America? Some residents stormed out of the meeting. A sheriff's deputy insisted on escorting McKinney home to protect her from people she'd known her whole life. We're like, what do you mean? And they're like, well... There's some angry people here. And so I was like, oh, like, but this is my hometown. What do you mean? You know, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is like the first time I didn't feel safe in my hometown. She was afraid for her kids and took steps to protect them as online abuse piled up on her feed. And this kind of thing happened in lots of places. Tom Boyke says the pandemic exposed the threadbare social fabric in much of the country. People don't like to feel like they're being taken advantage of. And to the extent they don't believe others are doing the right things, they resist doing the right things themselves. Boyke directs the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. And he says distrust helped drive U.S. COVID rates higher than those in most wealthy countries. This pandemic has been less about the microbe spreading around and more about the people to which it's spreading. It's about us and how we feel about each other and how we hang together as a community. Some states are doing a lot better than others. In New Hampshire, for example, people express the highest level of trust in the United States. And New Hampshire's COVID death rate was the second lowest. Bookie says his research shows that if all Americans were as trusting and cooperative as New Hampshireites, half a million COVID deaths would have been prevented. Brock Slabaugh is chief operations officer at the National Rural Health Association. And he says this trust issue it's the most vulnerable Americans. We're already behind the eight ball because we have higher poverty, lower rates of education, and less access to quality health care. And now, through the pandemic, we've added this issue of mistrust in the very professionals that for centuries we've valued as an important source of information for health and health care. 
Vilifying healthcare professionals hasn't made it any easier to recruit doctors and nurses to small towns. Slaba says you can add that to the lasting damage caused by the pandemic. And then to add insult to injury, we have lower rates, for example, of childhood immunization that directly come out of the pandemic and the mistrust in vaccines generally now. And so we're going to start seeing childhood diseases that we thought we've eradicated returning. And that's not the worst of it. Slaybaugh, Boyke, Dr. McKinney all agree. The United States is now less prepared, less capable of dealing with another pandemic or other major disaster. Because there's no sign that people inclined to suspect the worst of government or their neighbors are any more trusting now than they were in January 2020. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. That's the theme song for HBO's Succession. The blockbuster drama is the most nominated TV series in the 2023 Emmy Awards. Today is the last day members of the TV Academy can cast ballots for the winners, even though the awards themselves have been pushed back to next January because of the writers' and actors' strikes. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is here to help us sort out all the odd situations Emmy voters face in this singular year, and he might take a last opportunity to talk up his picks while he's here. Hey, Eric. Hi. There's a delay on the line, so I'm just going to warn listeners. But um, you say the Emmy Awards this year are wrestling with a number of issues, including including the question of what exactly is a TV comedy? How have these lines between comedy and drama been blurring? Well, you know, it, it, what's happened basically is that um, the producers can decide what they want to uh, submit their show for. And let's look at something like uh, the best comedy series nominee, The Bear, which is a show about a gourmet chef who takes over running his family's greasy spoon eatery in Chicago. Now, The Bear doesn't have conventional jokes, and it mostly feels like a drama, thanks to scenes like this, where Chef, chef Carmi Brazada gives his pastry chef Marcus a pep talk. Let's listen. I started a fryer fire. Night after I won Food and Wine's Best New Chef, nearly burned the place down. For real? For real. We have this minute where you, you're watching the fire and you're thinking, if I don't do anything, this place will burn down and all my anxiety will go away with it. And then you put the fire out. Then you put the fire out. I would never have thought of The Bear as a comedy. How do these shows <laughs> that appear to be a drama get classified in, in these categories that may or may not be a perfect fit for them? Yeah, as, well, as I said, you know, the producers uh, usually submit their shows for whatever category they think it belongs in. And there's a lot of shows that ride that fine line these days. I mean, Succession is a dark comedy, but it gets submitted as a drama. There's a tendency to put shows with half-hour running times in comedy anyway, and comedy is a less competitive category. I mean, The Bear is getting a lot of buzz, so depending on how Academy voters feel about it being classified as a comedy, that might affect how it competes against more conventional shows like Apple TV Plus's Ted Lasso or Prime Video's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And as an extra twist, The Bears nominated for its first season, which aired in 2022, not its most recent season, which was this year, and had these amazing cameos from stars like Jamie Lee Curtis. So personally, I think The Bear has lots of awards coming next year, and I think this year's uh, Emmy Award for Best Comedy Series should go to Abbott Elementary, which revived the network TV comedy with an authentic, touching look at teachers. Is the best drama series category any less confusing? 
Okay, it's a little. Uh, here we've got HBO's popular drama, The White Lotus. It cleaned up as a limited series in last year's Emmy Awards, and it's now in the drama series category against Succession, which has 27 nominations for this final season that was considered a TV classic. Now, there's so many shows in this category that deserve that Emmy, including the final season of Better Call Saul and the thrilling first season of The Last of Us. But I've got a feeling that Secession is just going to run the table for a masterful final season. That's going to be tough to deny. Well, I would call The White Lotus a comedy anyway, given Jennifer Coolidge's <laughs> performance. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, thanks for the preview. Thank you. This is NPR News. Almost three weeks after deadly wildfires swept through parts of West Maui, community members have begun to find ways to memorialize those who have been lost and remain unaccounted for. NPR's Kira Joaquin brings us the story of one Lahaina teacher who's leading efforts to remember local children who were among the 115 lives lost. Kylie Adolfo is a third grade teacher at Princess Nahi Ena Elementary School in Lahaina, and she has just one hope want people to remember their faces, not just names. While most schools in the area remained closed after the fires, she and a group of teachers decided they needed somewhere to remember the students they've lost. We wanted a visual representation of the people we love. We wanted to see each other, to share each other's spirit. They've created a memorial here at Kilauea Mauka Makai Park, roughly a mile from the water perched along a mountainside with sweeping views of the now decimated Lahaina town, Adolfo says before the fires, this park was the place to be for kids. Coming down the hill every day, you see the, the children running, just running. And they stop right here to be picked up by their parents, just waiting for their friends from other um, schools from the top side. The memorial includes posters of two young victims and an ahu, a native Hawaiian altar made of stones from a local stream and native plants. Adolfo, who's native Hawaiian, visits the park daily to tend to the ahu, water its plants, and greet visitors. On this day, she's talking to Trinette Furtado and Kamiki Carter of Maui Rapid Response, a locally run disaster response team. Cherry cookie, chocolate cherry cheesecake, peanut butter, vanilla fudge. Let me give you a hug first. The two were delivering food, water, and ice cream in the neighborhood when they spotted Kylie and decided to help her publicize the memorial on Facebook. Are we doing it under one minute? Because I know this just, social media thing. Bebe, there's no, just do it. Okay. I'm not, I'm, Adolfo like, is trying I'm to get the word out and encourages anyone who's grieving to share their memories here. I'm hoping that they, they'll continue to come because the story will continue so no one forgets. Kelly Perez also teaches at Princess Nahi Ena Ena Elementary School. She and her husband drove up to deliver supplies to a nearby community resource hub. She taught one of the deceased students seven-year-old Tony Takafua. We had just started our first day of kindergarten. Everybody was there, and he stood up very proudly, and he said, I'm tall because I'm Tongan. And I said, yes, you are, sweet boy. Now let's have a great year. For her, having a place she can come and share memories of Tony, like this one, have helped her grieve. Even just being here for the short time I've been here, we've already had other people stop up and drop lays, and it's, it's just a really nice place to mourn together. Meanwhile, West Maui teachers are going back to work this week. The state education department is holding meetings with them about how they'll approach school reopenings. But for Adolfo, the thought of returning before she can account for her students is too difficult to imagine. 
I've been here only a few years, 13 years maybe. And that would be an average of 20 students each year, 230 students. And I tell my friends that, 230 students that I'm, I'm looking for. But how am I gonna teach? I'm gonna go to a school and I'm not gonna see any one of them worrying about where are my students. Something that won't be known today, tomorrow, or perhaps for weeks to come. Kira Joaquim, NPR News, Maui. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, Wagner mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin may be dead, but his private army remains. With some Russians publicly mourning Prigozhin, the future of his fighters is unclear. That story and much more still to come on WBUR. 74 degrees in the Boston area. It's been a nice day today, but that may be it for the sunshine for a little while. Should fall to the low 60s overnight tonight. Clouds and fog around. Then for tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies. Chance of showers. Breezy and comfortable in the mid-70s again. Wednesday, cloudy, maybe rain and some thunderstorms still in the mid-70s. Could finally see the sunshine on Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 74 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments. Reminding you, it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC, and Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. Ukraine's offensive against Russia is getting the attention, but Russia is also pushing its troops forward, displacing elderly Ukrainians. Now uh, we have active uh, combat. Now it's dangerous territory, dangerous evacuation process. Why some people refuse to evacuate. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Wizard of Oz and the state of Kansas have been inseparable since the movie debuted in the summer of 1939. But does an enduring image from the Dust Bowl hold Kansas back from what it wants to be today? Reporter David Condos prepared this report for the Kansas News Service and NPR. Any Kansan who has stepped outside the state has heard the same quip. Nathan Dow certainly has. You know, the joke. They're like, oh, you're not in Kansas anymore. Like, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that. But he doesn't mind too much. After all, he's the museum director at two Wizard of Oz-themed attractions in his hometown of liberal Kansas, Dorothy's House and the Land of Oz. Uh-huh. We have all kinds. And up here... We have a lot of posters. Dahl reaches past a glass memorabilia case to pull a framed document off the wall. It says the state has designated this town in far southwest Kansas as the official home of Dorothy Gale. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Actress Judy Garland's famous line gave Kansas a global brand. But generations after the film's release, that brand might not be all bluebirds and lemon drops anymore. So is the state's connection to Oz a gift? 
or a curse that keeps Kansas boxed into an outdated, inaccurate image. Well, you know, the movie didn't work too hard to sell us with how black and white everything is and the dust and everything. But the message of the movie is still there's no place like home. Perhaps nowhere is that contradiction on display more than right here at Dorothy's house in Liberal. All right, so right here we have our Yellow Brick Road, and on here we have over two. That's our tour guide. You might have heard of her. I am Dorothy Gale. She's one of 10 Dorothys on staff here, and all of them remain stubbornly in character while on the job. She skips down a path of bricks painted yellow, wearing sequined red shoes and a blue gingham dress that museum rules specify must be homemade. She sings, she dances, she reenacts scenes from the movie. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. This particular Dorothy is the granddaughter of one of the museum's founders. So portraying the most famous fictional Kansan of all feels natural. I have some family like, you do that for a job? You get paid to walk around in red slippers and talk to people? Like, yeah, of course I do. Liberal's version of The Wizard of Oz may reside in a tan warehouse off US Highway 54 rather than the Emerald City, but travelers just keep coming. To Oz? To Oz. We one day's page in the museum guestbook features entries from Washington, D.C., Houston, Mexico. A truck driver from Idaho interrupts our tour to get his picture with Dorothy. For a lot of people, Oz still holds a special place in their heart. Recent retirees from Wisconsin, Lee and Terry Wieser, pulled over in the middle of their cross-country road trip. I saw the sign for Dorothy and I love The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I, w I grew up with it. Childhood memories? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lots of good memories. So aside from Dorothy and Toto, what exactly did they expect to find in Kansas? I was uh, thinking we might see a tornado. <laughs> Hopefully not. And twisters may not be the least flattering thing some visitors associate with Kansas. Our Dorothy tour guide has heard it all. I've seen a lot of people and heard a lot of people say that they thought this would just be horse buggies and <laughs> nothing here. And they were completely surprised that it was... I don't know, modern. <laughs> it's hard to separate the film from reality, even for experts like Brian Hoyle. I've never been to Kansas, although I feel like I have sometimes through The Wizard of Oz. He's a film studies scholar who teaches at the University of Dundee in Scotland. It's amazing how film can have such cultural resonance that it sets up in my head that, you know, Kansas is this good place, this safe place, this nice place, the place that we kind of yearn to go back to. You know, it's, there's no place like home. He says one of the film's key innovations is how it visually contrasts the subdued rural Americana of Kansas and the vibrant Technicolor of Oz. Even to theater goers in 1939, the sepia tones that wash over those Kansas scenes would have looked old, a throwback to the silent film era. And then Munchkinland hits you. And it's like you haven't seen color before. But today's Kansas sits somewhere in between those two extremes. Yes, it's windy, but Kansas has harnessed those breezes to become one of the top states for generating wind energy. There are still plenty of farms here, but these days they're run by fewer farmers who rely more on GPS satellites than scarecrows. And two-thirds of the population of Liberal, hometown to the film's archetypal white farm girl, now identifies as Latino. The state has growing urban centers, too, that are trying to turn from building grain elevators to building microchips and electric car batteries. But if outsiders still think of Kansas as Dorothy's backyard, that could hurt efforts to attract the high-tech businesses and workers it needs for the future. Just a few years ago, the state dropped its Oz-themed tourism slogan, There's No Place Like Kansas. 
Colby Sharples-Terry of the State Tourism Office says it was time to expand outsiders' view of Kansas beyond the yellow brick road. I don't want to say it's like a love-hate relationship at all. I absolutely adore the movie, but we in tourism are tasked with changing perceptions about Kansas. The state isn't clicking its heels to leave Oz behind entirely. It could never buy the marketing that Oz has done for Kansas over the years. You can't put a dollar amount on that. But as culture becomes more fragmented, the spell Oz cast over America might start to fade. Gabby Hall is creative director with the tourism marketing agency Noble Studios in Nevada. She says every new generation grows up further removed from the film's heyday. As travelers age, is that something you can anchor on to as a brand? But if not Oz, then what would Kansas anchor its brand to? Hall says recent research from another agency shows the top words consumers associate with Kansas are wheat, flat, boring, and the Wizard of Oz. So is Kansas still better off with Oz? Jane Albright thinks so, even if it means enduring the same old jokes every once in a while. Some people want to take that as an offense. I certainly don't. It's the most beloved movie in the world. Now, she may be biased. She joined the International Wizard of Oz Club as a 13-year-old growing up in Topeka, Kansas. Decades later, she's finishing her sixth year as the club's president, connecting hundreds of Oz fans around the globe. And because of Dorothy, they all know her home state. Dorothy wanted to get back to Kansas, and the whole concept of home is tied to Kansas in that film. So to me, there's not anything disparaging about that. In the end, maybe Kansas doesn't have to be a magical dreamland to be someplace special. It can simply be home. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Liberal, Kansas. Day I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon at WBUR. Gasoline prices in the state are holding steady. AAA Northeast says they've dropped statewide by a penny since last week to 3.76 a gallon. That is still 13 cents a gallon higher than it was a month ago, but 31 cents lower than it was a year ago. Prices in Boston remain at an average of 3.79 a gallon. In the forecast, overnight tonight down in the low 60s. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds around. Could get rained on a bit. Breezy, pretty comfortable. Temperatures in the mid-70s once again. In the Boston area, it is 74 degrees. The time is 4.59. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police in Jacksonville, Florida, say the man who shot three black people this weekend in a racist attack at a Dollar General store bought his guns legally. The shooter took his own life in the attack. President Biden says it's being considered a possible hate crime act. It's Monday, August 28th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the federal government has put five states on notice. They're making it too hard for people to stay on Medicaid. Many states have introduced bills that restrict the Chinese government and Chinese businesses from buying land as well as normal Chinese citizens. These laws assume that if you immigrate from China, your loyalty is to China. And that's extraordinarily harmful to the broader Asian American community in this country. A look at what these bills do and what they aim to do coming up. It's 501 News Headlines, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are on the way. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has set a March 4th date for former President Donald Trump on charges he sought to overturn the 2020 election. That's despite a request by attorneys for Trump who sought to push the trial beyond the election to 2026. As we hear from NPR's Carrie Johnson, that was a no-go for the judge in the case. She talked about making sure the defense had enough time to prepare, but not an unlimited amount of time to prepare. And she said holding the trial in 2026, as Trump's lawyers had proposed, was just totally out of line, given the fact that that would be five years after the Capitol riot uh, here in Washington, D.C. in January 2021, where witnesses' memories could fade. NPR's Carrie Johnson, Trump in a post on his social media platform, said he will appeal. A state of emergency has been ordered for 46 Florida counties as that state braces for a major hurricane. NPR's Greg Allen reports Idalia, now a tropical storm near Cuba, is headed toward Florida's Gulf Coast. Meteorologists say warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico will provide fuel for Idalia and is likely to strengthen significantly before making landfall. It's forecast to have more than 100 mile per hour winds and push a storm surge higher than 10 feet in some areas. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is warning residents to make storm preparations now and to heat evacuation orders. If you are in the path of this storm, anywhere on that Gulf Coast from the Tampa Bay area all the way up uh, to Franklin County in northwest Florida, uh, just prepare for major impacts. A possible complication for evacuations, 29 service stations in the Tampa area are being investigated for gasoline that may be contaminated with diesel fuel. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in Beijing today. It's the first time a U.S. Commerce Secretary has visited China in seven years. 
Wharf NPR's Emily Fang. Raimondo delivered a firm message in her first day of talks with China's Commerce Minister Wang Wentao. She told Wang that, quote, in matters of national security, there is no room to compromise or negotiate. But she emphasized most of the U.S.-China trade relationship is not related to national security, and she wanted to find ways to work and compete with China. Still, the two countries are at loggerheads over access to advanced semiconductor chips and competition over the technological capabilities of artificial intelligence. Raimondo is looking to stabilize the relationship despite these frictions. Emily Fang, and Pure News, Taipei. It's being called the largest fine of its kind to date. The U.S. Transportation Department today announcing it's levying a $4.1 million penalty against American Airlines for unlawfully keeping thousands of passengers on the runway, in some cases for hours. Officials say just over $2 million of the fine will be credited to the carrier for compensation provided to passengers of affected flights. Stocks kicked off a broad rally to start the week. The Dow was up 213 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey says she is heartbroken over the gun violence that erupted over the weekend in Boston and Worcester. She says her administration is committed to a coordinated approach to get illegal guns off the street and address the root causes of violence. Meanwhile, as WBUR's Steve Brown tells us, the incidents this weekend have prompted a renewed call on Beacon Hill for tougher gun laws. Earlier this summer, Stoneham Representative Michael Day filed a sweeping gun safety bill aimed at rewriting gun laws in Massachusetts. The House is expected to take up the bill this fall. Day says he believes his legislation would address shootings like the ones that occurred this past weekend. These folks, from what I understand, weren't licensed to have a gun. We know that 38% of lost or stolen guns end up being used in a crime. Our bill allows for those guns to be more easily traced. Day's bill also cracks down on so-called ghost guns, privately made firearms that do not have a serial number. It would also prohibit carrying guns in many public spaces. Gun rights advocates say legal gun ownership is not the problem. They oppose the bill, calling it a full-scale attack on the Second Amendment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The Boston City Council will now consider an ordinance that gives Boston police the authority to remove tents near Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. That area of the city has seen rampant homelessness and has become a center for violence, drug use, and other criminal activity. Mayor Michelle Wu submitted the new measure to the city council today. It would require that signs be posted notifying people they have 48 hours to remove temporary structures. People who refuse to comply could be arrested or fined. Individuals affected by the loss of their tents will be offered shelter space, transportation, and storage for their belongings. State troopers say they're offering prayers for one of their colleagues who was injured in a serious car crash in Utah. The State Police Association of Massachusetts says Trooper Matthew McCray was the passenger in the Salt Lake City rideshare car when it was struck Friday night. The driver of the other car was arrested for driving under the influence. McRae is in the ICU at the University of Utah Hospital in critical condition. A GoFundMe page for him says he has a broken neck and spinal injuries. In the Boston area now, 74 degrees should be down around the low 60s overnight tonight, a foggy night ahead. And for tomorrow, a cloudy day, chance of showers, breezy temperatures in the mid-70s once again. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We are continuing to follow updates from Jacksonville, Florida. A gunman there opened fire over the weekend in a mass shooting, killing three people and then himself. All of those who were killed were black, and the shooter, who was white, posted his racist views online. The Justice Department is now investigating this shooting as a hate crime. And this is happening against a backdrop of political tension around the state of Florida, as Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis prepared to address the community at a prayer vigil on Sunday. The crowd began to boo, some people yelling that his policies were to blame for the shooting. Let's bring in Mutaki Akbar, president of the Tallahassee branch of the NAACP. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So... I just want to start with your reaction to this shooting. What have you been hearing from those around you as more details have come to light here? The reaction is is, is sad, it's troubling, and it brings on a sense of anger also um, that these types of heinous acts are still happening in 2023. As we mentioned earlier, Governor DeSantis was booed at that prayer vigil on Sunday, and people in the crowd we're putting blame on his policies, and we should just point out here as governor, Governor DeSantis has loosened state gun laws in Florida. He's curbed efforts to teach black history in the state's public schools. And when he was being booed at that vigil, uh, Councilwoman Jacoby Pittman stepped in to stop the crowd, essentially saying that a bullet doesn't know a party. What were your reactions to that moment and Councilwoman Pittman's response there? Um, I think that the boos that, that were heard is the sentiment of a lot of the community that, you know, what's been going on for the last six years almost um, of what they call these culture wars and these the, the woke laws and everything has been an assault on um, minority people. And what it has done is has um, kind of emboldened those people like this shooter to claim that that black people are taking jobs, that black people are getting special treatment, whether it's um, DEI legislation or you know other types of legislation, and what we've been saying all along when it comes to teaching black history, when it comes to the importance of that diversity, equity, and inclusion, all of those things to fight against them, kind of lessens our worth. Um, and also causes people to have the type of hate that, that can go into a Dollar General and, and shoot people just because of the color of their skin. Right. I, I want to push a little bit here because in the wake of this shooting, we heard Governor DeSantis call this gunman's actions absolutely unacceptable. And we heard him say that people in the state of Florida should not be targeted based on their race. He's come out against this. And given that, is it fair to link curricula in schools to a violent mass shooting like the one that we saw over this weekend? Rhetoric is rhetoric. Um, whether you're spewing rhetoric as the governor or you're spewing rhetoric as, you know, somebody who is a gun-toting racist, it's the same what we feel like, um, you know, hate um, and racism. And we've seen it throughout the state. You know, we have Nazis holding up flags saying that this is DeSantis country. We have Nazis protesting outside of Disney because DeSantis is making claims against Disney. Of course he's gonna show up at a press conference and and make those statements, especially as running for president. But there have been a number of times throughout the years that he should have called out their racist behavior. And he never called it out until 
you know, this weekend when he, he was pretty much forced to. And even then, he couldn't muster up the language to call this person a racist. He called him a scumbag, which is, you know, okay, but like, like let's call it what it is. Let's call it racist. Let's call it racism. Let's call it hate. And, and, and let's teach what's going on the real way in these schools so we can't repeat history. Otherwise, we will repeat history. And that's a part of what we saw this weekend. I mean, when we have this is unfortunately a sad ritual where we have conversations with folks like yourself after tragic shootings like the one over the weekend. From your view, what can be done to address a shooting such as this one in which we have seen these racist writings from the shooter, three black victims killed? What's the solution here? That's that's a difficult question. Um because it is it, is trying to put a rational thought to irrational behavior, and that's the same thing we've been dealing with. I think with this legislation and this whole idea of being woke and everything. So I do think we need to stop the rhetoric, stop the hate, stop this idea of of being woke. All of a sudden means division, and let's let's move towards community. Let's move towards unity. And at the same time, discuss the realities of history. At the same time, discuss these ideas and policies that need to be put in place that put Black people in the Black community at equal footing as everybody else because of all that we've endured and still enduring. Um, So I think moving forward with equality. We've been speaking with Mutaki Akbar, president of the Tallahassee branch of the NAACP. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Washington is often concerned with tackling the threat of China's powerful, competitive economy. But in the past year, those concerns seem to have caught on at the state level. You see, more than 30 states have now introduced several dozens of bills restricting the Chinese government, Chinese businesses, even Chinese citizens from buying land in the U.S. For some, this evokes memories of the so-called alien land laws back in the 1900s that kept Asian Americans from owning property. Edgar Chen has been following the slew of legislation closely. He's a special policy advisor for the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be on. It's great to have you. You know, I was struck, Edgar, by just how many states have either proposed or altogether enacted bills having to do with restricting Chinese businesses and Chinese citizens from buying land just in the last year. I mean, we're talking about at least 34 states, according to one advocacy group. Why do you think all of this is happening in this moment? You know, fear of so-called malign influence by the Chinese Communist Party over American agriculture or fear that China will use land for spying purposes has often been cited as the basis for introduction of these bills. But to be clear, several of these bills as introduced also place restrictions on the ability of ordinary Chinese citizens to purchase residential real estate like condos. And can you tell us more about some of the specifics of the bills that jump out to you? that you find deeply troubling? Yes. So, for example, in Florida, a a law recently enacted there 
would prevent persons from certain countries that are deemed adversaries to the U.S. from purchasing agricultural land, land near military bases or critical infrastructure, and so most habitable areas. Mm -hmm. And that would ban persons from countries like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Syria, Venezuela, or Cuba from doing so. But that Florida law has an entire separate section dedicated to restricting those from China. And that law even has higher penalties for those violating the Chinese section than for other sections. So there are felony provisions for violating the Chinese section of the Florida law and misdemeanors for the other sections. Wow. To be fair, China does pose legitimate national security concerns to the U.S. at the moment. How effective do you think these bills at the state level really are at addressing those national security concerns? So I think that, you know, what we've seen, for instance, with the Chinese spy balloon in February of this year doesn't help matters. That provided a tangible illustration of the ongoing geopolitical threat posed by China. But again, these laws that we've seen introduced do nothing to address that particular threat head on. I don't see how banning someone from buying a condo in a downtown area will address that particular threat. Right. And specifically, what is the rationale to target individuals who are legally here in the U.S. from buying land here? So the problem is there is a false moral equivalency that equates ordinary Chinese citizens, even those with no ties to the Chinese Communist Party, as essentially being agents of those regimes. So these laws assume that if you immigrate from China, your loyalty is to China. And that's extraordinarily harmful to the broader Asian American community in this country. Well, the U.S. Justice Department has signaled that it does not think Florida's law is constitutional. And just to be clear, this law, this legal challenge to the law is still going through the courts. But there's clearly a concern that the Florida law and and, and others like it could represent a slippery slope towards more discriminatory laws aimed at Chinese citizens, Chinese people. As a lawyer, I guess, how much faith do you have in our court system to get laws like this struck down? Elsa, there is no slippery slope. This country has already seen this movie before. We've experienced the discriminatory effects of these laws. The court that recently upheld the Florida law cited to a widely discredited 1923 precedent, which contains language about those who are eligible for citizenship and therefore entitled to purchase property. And that 1923 Supreme Court precedent says that natives of European countries are eligible, Japanese, Chinese, and Malays are not. That is the type of case law that is being cited to. And as an Asian American and as a lawyer, I'm stunned that the court would continue to rely on the case that contains so much discriminatory reasoning. As legal precedent. As legal precedent. And, and you know, those alien land laws helped set the groundwork for the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. So for the Asian American community, we have seen this. The slippery slope has already come and we thought gone. And now it's replaying. That was Edgar Chen, Special Policy Advisor for the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you also for having me on. You're listening to All Things Considered. 
Listen to WBR wherever you go. Download or update the WBR app now and tap to listen live. Coming up on WBR in about 10 minutes, employers are rolling out stricter return to the office policies. The federal government is one of them. The push to come back is facing challenges as some workers try to balance pre- and post-COVID policies. We've always told our our workforce, look, we're not going to go back to the way things were pre-pandemic, and we haven't. I'll look at the shift coming up in just about 15 minutes. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at Bassberry.com. We should have increasing clouds over the next several hours. Clouds sticking around overnight tonight. Some fog, too. Overnight lows just about the low 60s. Then tomorrow should make it to the mid-70s again with clouds and some fog around. May finally see some sunshine coming our way on Thursday. 74 degrees now in Boston at 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Wall Street recovered some of its losses from earlier this month. The Dow and S&P gained more than six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up more than eight-tenths of a percent. CVS Health says it's laying off 140 employees in the state in October. The Boston Business Journal reports 76 workers in Boston and 64 in Wellesley will be let go. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Russia, people are mourning the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin and asking what comes next for the mercenary organization he led. The Wagner Group is a huge transnational fighting force. And NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow has been talking with people about its future. Hi there. Hi there. What have you learned about what's happening within Wagner right now? Well, I was in touch over the weekend with a source who used to serve in Wagner, specifically in Syria. Uh, He told me that the mercenary force had a contingency plan uh, to delegate authority in the event of the death of the leadership, in other words, Prigozhin. Uh, And yet my source says that this second tier of command in Wagner has gone silent. Uh, Everyone's still waiting to hear what they have to say. Uh, Meanwhile, we've had an outpouring of tributes to Prigozhin, including one here in Moscow, where I was today. Okay, let's listen to some of that reporting. So I'm near the Kremlin, uh, where an impromptu memorial has sprung up to Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner chief, as well as his commanders who were killed in the crash. Uh, You can see people bringing flowers, uh, the Russian flags, uh, candles, uh, the Wagner insignia, and portraits, of course, of Prigozhin and several of the other people killed. A masked man decked out in camouflage with a Wagner patch, an apparent member of the militia, is tending to the memorial. I ask him, what should people understand about Yevgeny Prigozhin? 
He's a Russian patriot, he replies, and ends the interview. Other visitors to the memorial were more willing to speak. Azad Bikmulin traveled more than 500 miles to Moscow from the city of Kazan to pay respects, and with good reason. My father is in Wagner, he says. In fact, he's on assignment now, somewhere, maybe Africa, maybe Belarus or Ukraine. Bikmulin hasn't heard from his dad in a month. But maybe, just maybe, he says, Prigozhin, who he says the other mercenaries call Papa, is with him. He might still be alive, says Bikmulin. The media has reported Prigozhin dead before, and we still haven't seen a body. Bikmulin's mother, Alfia, says her husband signed up for Wagner because of Prigozhin. She trusted him, she tells me. He was with the people and told the truth, and that's why the leadership didn't like him. He looked like a, a guy uh, who put his principles over over the Russian propaganda. Ivan is a 23-year-old lawyer by training who refused to give his last name out of concern for his safety. Ivan says he's against the war and no fan of Prigozhin's, but he recognizes that Prigozhin's plain talk about the struggles on the front and failures inside the defense ministry made him a star to many in Russia. Because he gained his points when he criticized the Minister of Defense and uh, he chose this strategy that was pretty successful. Passing by the memorial on her way to the local Orthodox Church, pensioner Irina Pavlova says Prigozhin's rebellion against Russia's military leadership in June of last month was his undoing, at least in God's eyes. I believe in God's will, she told me. Prigozhin had fulfilled his mission on earth, and the Lord came to take him away. Nastya, a local liberal activist who also won't give her last name, says whatever happened to Prigozhin's plane, it wasn't by chance. It was revenge for the uprising, she tells me, though the crash came two months of the day after the rebellion. Someone, she says, took revenge. Alexander from Donetsk also wouldn't give his last name. He says he moved to Moscow after Ukrainian authorities brought criminal charges against him for separatism. He says Prigozhin died for speaking the truth about a failed war. 99.9% of people know what happened, he says, but you know where we live and why we can't say it out loud. Voices at a memorial to Yevgeny Prigozhin near the Kremlin, brought to us by Charles Maines, who is still with us. And you mentioned there is a lower tier of Wagner commanders, and they've been silent so far. What are the stakes for them? Well, Wagner is the most famous of the private mercenary groups in Russia, but it's far from the only one. Uh, There are already reports that these other groups and the defense ministry are vying for Wagner's spoils. It's contracts in Africa, Syria that made Prigozhin a wealthy man. Uh, As to the lower Wagner command in conversations I've had, uh, including today, the sense is that simmering anger Prigozhin tapped into over the way the war in Ukraine has been run, it's still there. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. The federal government has put five states on notice that they make it too hard for people to stay on Medicaid. States share the expense of Medicaid with the federal government, and it's often among their biggest budget items. So states have incentive to keep rolls thin. And when COVID-19 hit, states had to keep everyone on the rolls. But now that rule has expired. And many federal regulators say some states may be denying benefits to too many people. Montana Public Radio's Austin Amistoy reports. 
During the pandemic, the number of people on Medicaid nationwide swelled to more than a quarter of the U.S. population. That's in part because for three pandemic years, the federal government stopped making people prove that their incomes remained low enough to be eligible for Medicaid coverage. You have reached the Montana Public Assistance Helpline. Kelly Whithorn is trying to get back on Medicaid in Montana. To speak with someone, press zero. Whithorn is 42 and lives in a small town north of Yellowstone National Park. She found out she lost coverage in July when her pharmacist told her Medicaid was no longer paying for her heart failure medications. Now she has to put that $700 a month on her credit card. It was just like a, like a punch in the gut. <laughs> Whithorn has spent countless hours trying to get a real person to pick up the phone so she can prove her income hasn't changed and she's still eligible. Did you know that you can request a callback so that you don't have to wait on hold? She wasn't it able was to get to through so. today and had to make an appointment for a call a week later. Montana's 42-minute average wait time for its Medicaid call center is one of the worst in the nation. Only Missouri's is longer. About 40% of people who call Montana's helpline abandon their calls, a rate higher than most states, Medicaid says. But Whithorn says she has to keep trying. I feel like, like I was swimming with both of my arms and legs and losing the Medicaid. It makes me feel like I, they, they've like cut off one of my legs and now I'm, I'm just like floundering around in the water. Montana's Department of Health declines to answer questions from the press about long wait times and abandoned calls. In an emailed statement, it says it's complying with federal rules, but federal Medicaid authorities say they may not be. Medicaid also says Montana is at the bottom of the pack when it comes to re-enrolling people who remain eligible for coverage, along with New Mexico, Alaska, Rhode Island, and Florida. Those five states have also disenrolled a relatively high number of people, which is concerning, says Jennifer Wagner with the Washington, D.C. think tank Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. We don't know why somebody lost coverage. We don't know if they remain eligible. Um, and many times those individuals are still eligible. Wagner says the problems Medicaid has identified in the five states, including Montana, could indicate they're not re-enrolling people who are still eligible for health coverage. And so hopefully when we see these concerning data, it's an opportunity to intervene and say, hey, here are some options that you haven't taken. Let's get things straightened out. The statement from Montana's health department says a, quote, small proportion of people are losing coverage due to mail issues, unquote, but contends that most people who don't return paperwork would no longer qualify. For Kelly Whithorn, the Montana resident who says she was mistakenly kicked off Medicaid, knowing that federal regulators have identified potential problems here is slim consolation. Knowing that I'm not alone, <laughs> like it, it helps a little bit, but it also hurts. This should not be happening. Whithorn will be able to ask for retroactive coverage of medical expenses, but she'll still be responsible for the interest accruing on her credit card. And she says nothing will replace the canceled doctor's appointments she depends on to stay healthy. For NPR News, I'm Austin Amistoy. And this is All Things Considered. You're listening to WPUR in Boston. In about 10 minutes, the march on Washington happened 60 years ago today. A quarter of a million people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial to support voting rights and fight police brutality. Coming up, we meet three of the people who witnessed that history. Red Sox and Houston Astros start up game three, a three-game series at Fenway Park tonight. And overnight, overcast skies should stick around through midweek, in fact. Tonight, down around 63 degrees. Should be about as mild as today was tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s with showers off and on. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. 
accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. There's a major effort to fully decriminalize sex work in the United States, but many former sex workers are pushing back. This idea that it's her body, her choice, you know, she has power and autonomy in the sex trade is a, is a fallacy. Advocates have differing opinions, but all agree that the status quo isn't working. Should the law be changed and how? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Florida is bracing for the first hurricane of the season, and Governor Ron DeSantis has declared a state of emergency in 46 counties there. The Biden administration is sending federal resources ahead of the storm. That's expected to strengthen to a major Category 3 by Wednesday. Governor DeSantis and state officials are urging folks in low-lying areas along the Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast to leave before it's too late. Now is the time to, to, to put your plan in place. You do have time today and, and throughout most of tomorrow uh, to, to make arrangements, uh, whether it's an evacuation or whether it's other things. As we start to get into to Tuesday evening, you are going to start to see the impacts of this, and we expect a landfall uh, sometime on Wednesday. Tropical storm Idalia is currently hitting Cuba with heavy rain, and like Florida, Cuba is still recovering from destruction from Hurricane Ian one year ago. The White House is following developments in Australia, where over the weekend, three U.S. Marines engaged in regional joint exercises were killed in a helicopter crash. Several others were injured, as NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. In a post on social media, President Biden offered his deepest condolences to the families of the Marines who died in the crash and said he and the First Lady are praying for the service members who were injured. The military plane was carrying 23 Marines when it crashed and then caught fire on Melville Island, just off the northern coast of Australia. The Marines were taking part in military exercises with Australia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and East Timor at the time. First responders are now focusing on recovering the remains of the three Marines at the crash site. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council will consider a measure that bans tents from the area of the city known as Mass and Cass. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu filed the ordinance today, as WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Mayor Wu says the ordinance is needed because tents are shielding criminal activity in the Mass and Cass area. Her ordinance would require notice that temporary structures on public property would have to be removed within 48 hours. It also says affected individuals would be offered shelter space, transportation to services, and storage for their belongings. Boston police would be permitted to remove the tents after that and could issue citations or fine those who do not comply or put up their tents elsewhere. The Boston City Council takes up the ordinance Wednesday and has 60 days to decide whether to approve it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The ACLU of Massachusetts says it's monitoring the situation to make sure people's constitutional rights are not violated if the ordinance is passed. The group says everyone deserves to be safe and treated with humanity, regardless of their housing situation. The big move has begun as students and their furniture arrive in the Boston area for the new college year, and that has the state warning movers of what's called storrowing. That's when a truck driver finds out the hard way that the bridges on Storrow and Memorial Drives are too low for them and the truck gets stuck. 
Jeff Parenti of the state's Department of Conservation and Recreation was on hand when a new type of cars-only sign was installed today at Mugar Way at the intersection of Mount Vernon Street off Storrow Drive. The sign has rubber hanging from the bottom, designed to be a warning for the errant driver. The new sign is aluminum and heavier, so I think it will make a, more in, a bigger impact on the, on the top of the truck. We'll get the driver's attention, and hopefully the driver will understand that they're entering a roadway with low clearance. Parenti says the state has put up multiple signs warning drivers of low clearance bridges and overpasses. The federal government is auctioning off some oceanfront property in Jamestown, Rhode Island. The General Services Administration says the vacant property is near the Connecticut Point Lighthouse. Opening bids start today at $20,000, and the auction will close once the bidding stops. The auction does not include the lighthouse itself. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. Lots of clouds overnight tonight, some fog around too, with temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow should start up as today did, some patchy fog, light rain. Clouds through the day, temperatures in the mid-70s, which is where they are right now, still 74 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen, available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's back to school season and soon for more workers back to the office season. This fall, employers including BlackRock, Farmers Insurance, even Zoom are rolling out stricter requirements for in-person work. So is the federal government in a major push, as NPR's Andrea Shu reports. It's been a year and a half since President Biden, in his State of the Union address, first made the appeal. It's time for America to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again with people. People working from home can feel safe and begin to return to their offices. We're doing that here in the federal government. Actually, not really. A whole year later, a government report found many federal buildings still at less than 25% occupancy. House Republicans got on the case early this year, passing a bill called the Show Up Act. It is clear extended telework is not working for the American people. Our constituents have been calling our office and wondering why the IRS, the Social Security Administration, the VA aren't answering their phones. It's abundantly clear that something must change. Well, in April, the Biden administration weighed in again, telling agency leaders to substantially increase in-person work. And a few weeks ago, White House Chief of Staff Jeff Science added a personal touch, writing in a memo, I am looking to each of you to aggressively execute the shift in the fall. In some corners of the federal government, that shift is not welcomed at all. That's why I'm sleeping not very much. Jesus Soriano is a program director with the National Science Foundation. That's the federal agency that funds research and education at the forefront of science and engineering. He's also president of the union that represents the staff scientists who decide what's worth funding and where science should go. Those employees are not numbers on a spreadsheet. 
they are those experts in very specific scientific disciplines that have lives. Over the last few years, Soriano says, a liberal telework policy allowed the National Science Foundation to hire brilliant PhDs who would have never considered the role before. Pre-pandemic, the assumption was you'd move to the D.C. area, a non-starter for people whose spouses have careers elsewhere or who have family members to care for. And then there's the cost of living. The area is becoming too expensive for public servants who in general make at least 20% less than their counterparts in the private sector. Two recent hires told NPR they were clear during interviews that they would never move to be close to headquarters. And while no promises were made, their understanding was it wouldn't be a problem. So last fall, it came as a surprise when employees were asked to report to the office two days per pay period. Now, some people were granted a temporary extension of remote work, but others have been commuting in every month on their own dime from all over the country. From California to Colorado to Florida, etc. And then the summer came news that starting in October, the requirement is doubling. People will have to be in the office four days per pay period. Soriano has warned leadership, if you force people to choose between their jobs and their family, you will lose out on talent. We've always told our, our workforce, look, we're not going to go back to the way things were pre-pandemic, and we haven't. But Karen Marangel, chief operating officer at the National Science Foundation, says what they resorted to during COVID wasn't working either. We were making decisions at that point in a very different environment. Yes, projects were getting funded, she says, but mentorships were suffering. People's networks were narrowing. Trust had taken a hit. Now, Marangel says they are working with the union on granting some waivers, and she's keeping close tabs on how things are going, what still needs adjusting. I think one of the challenges is that there's no time to rest. Like the pandemic itself, this is new territory, with more trial and error ahead. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Today marks 60 years since a seminal moment in the civil rights movement, the 1963 March on Washington. Some 250,000 people gathered around the Lincoln Memorial that day, and NPR sat down with some of them to hear more about their memories, which included Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech and so much more. We start with Cortland Cox, who was an organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The African-American community had already been through the sit-ins. They had already been through the Freedom Rides. So when the call was made by A. Philip Randolph to have a march on Washington, people were ready to come. They want no reservations. They want complete equality, social, economic, and political. We are requesting all citizens to move into Washington, to go by plane, by car, bus, any way that you can get there. Walk if necessary. Byron Rustin and I got up early in the morning, and we went out to the mall. There was not a soul on the mall, no one. And Byron turns to me and said, Cortland, do you think anyone is coming to this march? And soon as he said that, I mean, people were just pouring out of bus stations, of, of train stations. My name is Edith Lee Payne. It was my 12th birthday. We started off at the monument, so as people were filling up, it was, it was just kind of amazing to see, you know, at, at some point, that's all I could see was just walls of people. By your great numbers, you have forced a slow, dignified, and stately march. We'll see you at the Lincoln Memorial. 
My name is uh, Professor A. Peter Bailey. I went from first grade through 12th grade and learned practically nothing about black history. I mean, nothing. I always liked history. And uh, so I knew that March on Washington was going to be a historical event, so I went. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, JR. People need to understand the big issue that black people had to face at that point is what do you Negroes want? Martin King in his speech said, what people want here is the full participation in the American dream. All the things that you hold sacred, we hold sacred. Yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was a powerful speech. It's almost criminal when they have reduced that man to I have a dream. Where he talks about the founding fathers of this country gave our ancestors a, a promissory note. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And we've come here today to cash that check. Now, to me, that should be the quote, you know, that is, that is memorized from that speech. You don't hear, hear nothing, any programs and events around the day of Dr. King's assassination. All you hear is, I have a dream. I have a dream. And I think that it's almost criminal because that man was way more than that. I think history was written today, which will have its effect on coming generations with respect to our democracy, with respect to our ideals, with respect to the great struggle of man toward freedom and human dignity. You think you're gonna do something today and see the results next week or next month. You gotta understand that you're in a long range thing. Look upon it as like a big chain and every generation must do a share to weaken the links in that chain, because the chain is definitely gonna break, but it may be your great-grandchildren who see it break. That was A. Peter Bailey, Cortland Cox, and Edith Lee Payne recounting their memories of the March on Washington 60 years ago today. This is NPR News. Driverless cars now roam San Francisco around the clock, but it's been a bumpy road the last few weeks. One issue is that street activists have figured out how to immobilize these robo-taxis in a low-tech way. Here's NPR tech correspondent Derek Kerr. It's dark out by the time members of Safe Street Rebel meet up with their e-bikes. They're wearing face masks and refuse to reveal their identities. That's because it's unclear whether disabling driverless cars is legal. Oh, let's go. Get in front of it over there. Uh, not in the crosswalk, not in the crosswalk. One of the group's organizers explains the point of all of this. We thought putting cones on these was a funny image that could captivate people, and one of these self-driving cars with billions of dollars of venture capital investment money and R&D just being disabled by a common traffic cone. The anonymous group uses street theater shenanigans to fight against cars and promote public transportation. Its newest target has been the hundreds of driverless vehicles run by the companies Cruise and Waymo. The group figured out that if they put an orange traffic cone directly on the hood of these robo-taxis, it confuses the car's sensors and shuts it down. They say they don't like the city being used as a guinea pig for this new technology. I think a lot of us are uncomfortable with just the fact that we are beta testers, unwilling beta testers, 
Safe Street Rebel has ground rules. They don't cone on bus routes and they won't go after a vehicle carrying a passenger. But otherwise, any busy street is fair game. As they wait on a corner, an autonomous vehicle pulls up. They run into the intersection, cones in hand, only to see people inside. These passengers know exactly what's going on. No one's in it. Uh, no. no. Coning driverless cars has become a viral sensation in San Francisco. Protesters in San Francisco are trying to stop self-driving cars from expanding. They've been roaming the streets of San Francisco. Using traffic cones to prove that truly autonomous driving is not only not ready for prime time, but something too easy to tamper with. A cruise spokesperson told NPR that intentionally obstructing the driverless cars, quote, risk creating traffic congestion. It's unclear why the cones disable their vehicles, and neither Cruise nor Waymo responded to questions on how this is happening. The traffic cone protest is an example of how things in the real world can really confound machines, even ones as sophisticated and finely tuned as this. Margaret O'Mara is a history professor who studies the tech industry at the University of Washington. All new technologies are greeted with a combination of fascination and fear. It's like, wow, this is so cool. And oh my gosh, the robot overlords are coming. And nothing really encapsulates that better than an autonomous vehicle. Earlier this month, California decided to allow Cruise and Waymo to expand their programs and provide robo-taxi service 24-7. Since then, a driverless car steered into a construction site and sunk into wet cement. Nearly a dozen others got confused after a concert and became paralyzed, blocking the streets. And a cruise vehicle carrying a passenger collided with a fire truck. We don't really need traffic cones to show how vulnerable they are. The Safe Street Rebel organizer says the group isn't anti-technology. Many of them say they're actually tech workers. At a busy intersection, a couple activists see their next robot victim turning a corner, a Waymo. No one is inside. They run out and put the cone on the hood. All right. Looks good. Let's get out of here. The car's side lights burst on and begin to flash. And then the vehicle sits there immobile in the middle of the street. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered. Donald Trump will stand trial next March in the thick of the presidential campaign. That story is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Chris Sale takes them out at Fenway Park tonight, and the Astros go with Christian Javier for the first game of a three-game set, 7-10 start time. Overcast skies around tonight should stick around through midweek. Tonight, down around 63 degrees, some fog around. Foggy tomorrow morning as well. Should be about as mild as today has been. Highs in the mid-70s tomorrow. Could have a few showers off and on. And then Wednesday, same thing. Cloudy in the mid-70s. Maybe a few thunderstorms moving in. And then we could have brighter skies toward the end of the week. The time is 549. Ukraine's offensive against Russia is getting the attention. But Russia is also pushing its troops forward, displacing elderly Ukrainians. Now uh, we have active uh, combat. Now it's dangerous territory, dangerous evacuation process. 
Why some people refuse to evacuate. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Florida is bracing for a major hurricane by Wednesday. Tropical storm Idalia is expected to strengthen significantly after it passes over western Cuba tonight and moves over the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. NPR's Debbie Elliott has been monitoring Florida's preparations and joins us now. Hi, Debbie. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, so what is the precise threat from Idalia at this point? You know, dangerous winds and certainly life-threatening storm surge. The thing here is that Idalia will be gaining so much strength over the supercharged Gulf of Mexico. You know, temperatures off of Florida's west coast are as hot as 90 degrees in some places, and that's just pure fuel for rapid intensification of a hurricane. Uh, The forecast says there could be as much as a 12-foot storm surge. That's a huge wall of water pushing ashore with the storm. Um, And then the storm is going to affect a large area. It's you know, stretching from the Florida panhandle all the way south of Tampa Bay. Wow. Well, what are Floridians doing now to prepare in advance of this storm? Well, tens of thousands of utility workers are staged and in place ready to start repairs because there is significant wind damage expected. There's search and rescue teams getting ready, high water vehicles and food and water supplies being put into place. Some 5,500 National Guard troops are mobilized to help with the recovery. And locally, emergency officials are opening shelters and evacuating people from vulnerable coastal areas. Just in the Tampa Bay area alone, about 330,000 people are under mandatory evacuation orders, including mobile homes. Uh, here's Pinellas County Emergency Management Director Kathy Perkins urging residents to take this threat seriously. If you live in those barrier islands and those low-lying areas, we want you to move out of harm's way. This is going to be a Category 3, a major storm, right off the coast of Pinellas County. Well, Debbie, this is the first hurricane to take aim at Florida this season, right? Mm-hmm. And and I know that it's coming as Southwest Florida is still recovering from Hurricane Ian, which was last year's. So what kind of fears are you hearing from people right now? Right. It's already difficult to find companies willing to insure property given the state's high insurance losses. Mm. But with climate change and the warmer ocean temperatures, you're going to get more rapidly intensifying storms. Late last week, forecasters thought this might just be a tropical storm. And then this morning, the picture changed and got much more serious. At one of his briefings today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis acknowledged the uncertainty of what the state is facing. So we are bracing for a major hurricane impact, Category 3 plus. Hopefully uh, it doesn't get much worse than a Category 3. But but the reality is you got basically clear sailing for this thing. You've got waters uh, that are warm and there's not really going to be much to slow it down. Now, just the slightest wobble of the hurricane's track at the last minute could put even more people at risk. So DeSantis is urging everyone on the Gulf Coast to be prepared and to stay vigilant. That is NPR's Debbie Elliott. Thank you so much, Debbie. You're welcome. Nearly half of states have made recreational marijuana legal. In some states where recreational cannabis is still restricted, people can get the same psychoactive effects from a new, apparently legal product called THCA. Steve Harrison of member station WFAE in Charlotte reports. 
In North Carolina, recreational marijuana is illegal. So is medical marijuana. But you wouldn't know that when you go to Blue Flowers in one of Charlotte's most upscale areas. When you approach the store, you quickly notice the smell. It's almost like the scent trail, you know, off a pie hanging out in a window, scent lines waving around. That's Blue Flower salesman Nick Davenport, who's standing in front of several large mason jars of hemp flower with names for different strains like Bruce Banner and Karma 2020. Now I've got things from sativa to hybrid to indica strains where those will still give you uplifting, you're relaxing, you're kind of middleman effects. He's skilled in hyping what he's selling. Something more couch locky, I always refer indica as like indica couch to my people because it, you should expect that kind of effect. There are pre-rolled joints next to the register. That one on the right, that is the lemon drop strain. Has a nice kind of citrus hint to the flavor. Just a nice smooth smoke, and you'll just be in a good spot afterwards, that's for sure. People are often stunned at all of the products that can get them high. 100% people coming in here, they're like, I had no idea it was even this like far along. I didn't even know I could get this kind of stuff. It's possible because of the 2018 Farm Bill. It removed hemp products as controlled substances, so long as they have less than 0.3% Delta-9 THC. That's the active ingredient in marijuana that gets you high. After that law, the market found new ways to make hemp mimic marijuana. One of the first products, Delta-8. It has psychoactive effects that exist only in very small quantities in hemp, says Ryan Dills, who co-owns the Georgia Hemp Company. But if you can extract it from millions of pounds of plants or however many plants you got, then you can have as much Delta-8 as you want. The concentrated Delta-8 is placed in gummies or sprayed on hemp flour. The FDA has not evaluated Delta-8 nor approved it for safe use and has sent warning letters to companies not to market it as a medical product. Then last year, another hemp product hit the market, THCA. Eating a piece of hemp flour with THCA wouldn't get you high, but that changes when it's burned. It becomes Delta-9 once you combust it, once you smoke it, so it's kind of a loophole, if you will. Recreational marijuana is illegal in Georgia. Dill says he's not selling the illegal Delta-9 THC, but unheated THCA. So people that come in that know and ask about it, we'll educate them and say, hey, this is the same thing as regular THC. Buying a joint in Colorado is the same thing as buying this THCA joint. Stores in marijuana restrictive states like Texas, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Alabama, and Nebraska sell similar products. That surprises Erica Stark with the National Hemp Association. I don't know how that's legal. She says the 2018 bill requires states to test hemp for its Delta-9 THC content, quote, post-decarboxylation. In other words, after it's been burned. So a 21% THCA flower would never meet the hemp standards of any state. But federal guidelines only require that testing a month before harvesting the hemp. That's when THC levels are still low. Some states, like Louisiana, have already banned smokable hemp. Many others have not regulated it, says Phil Dixon at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Government. It's kind of the Wild West. There's no age limit on this stuff. I get prosecutors calling me all the time that are like, hey, I got a kid. We found him with a bag of Delta A gummies. Middle school, I want to charge him. And it's like, it's not a crime. North Carolina lawmakers introduced a bill that would add an age requirement for these hemp products. But it's stalled. 
Meanwhile, Blue Flowers, that hemp store by the Whole Foods, now has a billboard on Interstate 85. For NPR News, I'm Steve Harrison in Charlotte. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us today. We're in for overcast skies overnight tonight. Should be foggy down around the low 60s. Tomorrow should start up as today did with patchy fog, some light rain, clouds lasting the day, highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR, still 74 degrees at 559. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump will go on trial next March for trying to overturn his election defeat in 2020. Today, the judge set the trial date for a Monday, March 4th, the day before more than a dozen states vote on Super Tuesday. It's August 28th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, watch where you step outside. Poison ivy is showing up earlier in Massachusetts with bigger and itchier leaves. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. Researchers say that's due to climate change. Also, Simone Biles wins a record eighth U.S. championship 10 years after she first reached the top of her sport. It's 6.01, news headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has approved a disaster declaration for Florida as the state braces for a major hurricane. 
NPR's Debbie Elliott reports tropical storm Idalia is forecast to become a hurricane later today and make landfall on the Florida Gulf Coast Wednesday. Emergency officials in the Tampa Bay area have ordered mandatory evacuations for more than 330,000 vulnerable coastal residents, including all mobile homes and nursing home facilities. Pinellas County Emergency Management Director Kathy Perkins is urging people to take the threat seriously and heed evacuation orders. If you live in those barrier islands and those low-lying areas, we want you to move out of harm's way. This is going to be a Category 3, a major storm, right off the coast of Pinellas County. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's emergency declaration covers 46 counties from the Panhandle down the west coast of the state. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Former President Donald Trump and 18 others are now scheduled to be arraigned next week on charges related to efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Roll Bali with member station WABE says that does not necessarily mean the former president will be making another trip to Georgia, though. Trump and his co-defendants have the right to waive their appearances in the plea and arraignment hearing set for next Wednesday, September the 6th. A lawyer can enter a plea on their behalf. A judge set the former president's appearance for 9.30 in the morning, followed by his former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and the rest of the defendants throughout the day. The former president was booked and released last Thursday from the Fulton County Jail after taking his now infamous booking photo and posting a $200,000 bond. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. Spanish prosecutors have opened an investigation into the president of the country's soccer federation. He could face criminal charges for kissing a player after Spain's national team won the Women's World Cup a week ago. Alariz Tarol has more. Prosecutors will look into whether Luis Rubiales committed a crime when he kissed the Spanish player Jenny Hermoso on the lips during the World Cup award ceremony. Despite public outcry, Rubiales has refused to step down and threaten legal action against his critics. This prompted the entire World Cup winning squad to abandon the national team until a change of leadership. The International Soccer Federation, FIFA, has suspended Rubiales for 90 days. Alan Rees Terrell reporting. A late summer wave of coronavirus infections appears to be hitting just as kids return to school and the summer's winding down. Officials with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say as of August 12th, hospitalizations were up 24 percent over a two-week period. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street, the Dow up 213 points. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A key member of the Healy administration has submitted her resignation just seven months after she started the job. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Transportation Secretary Gina Fiendaka will step down on September 11th. In a statement, Governor Healy wished her well in her future endeavors. She said the secretary hit the ground running and delivered on many of the administration's key transportation priorities. No reason for Fiendaka's departure was given. Fiendaka had long served as commissioner of Boston's Transportation Department and most recently oversaw mobility initiatives in Austin, Texas. Transportation Undersecretary Monica Tibbetts-Nutt will serve as acting secretary. The change comes at a crucial time as the administration wrestles with countless issues affecting the MBTA. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
The Boston FBI office has a new leader. Today, FBI Director Christopher Wray named Jody Cohen as the new special agent in charge of the Boston office. The office includes all of Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Cohen was most recently special agent in charge of the Louisville, Kentucky field office. Here in Boston, she replaces Joseph Bonavolanta, who retired in June. The cold case known as the Lady of the Dunes is now closed. That's according to an announcement today from the Cape and Islands District Attorney. The mutilated body of Ruth Marie Terry was found in the Provincetown Dunes in July of 1974. She was identified last October using DNA analysis. DNA also connected her uh, late husband to the case. He died in 22, and investigators now say definitively that he was responsible for Terry's death. Framingham is facing a major bus driver shortage as students head back to school this week. Superintendent Robert Tremblay told WBUR's Radio Boston that the school district is 20 drivers short. He says elementary school students who live more than two miles from school will still be guaranteed a ride. So at this point, we're able to provide for all of our eligible riders under the law and under our policy, but we're not able to provide that level of customer service that we have a long tradition of providing, and that's what's disappointing. Tremblay says bus provider North Reading Terminal has been trying to recruit more drivers, but the efforts are falling short. He says the school district is working with Framingham's regional transit network to bus about 100 students to school for now. Salem State University has a new vice president of diversity and inclusion. Christopher McDonald Dennis joined the university August 7th. He was most recently senior advisor for institutional equity and belonging at Mass College of Liberal Arts. And the MBTA is making several changes to regular service next month for repairs. Shuttle bus will replace uh, red line trains between North Quincy and Braintree several evenings in September. Shuttles will also replace commuter rail trains between South Station and Braintree on several dates next month. Additional changes to both subway and commuter rail service are listed on the MBTA's website. In the forecast, fog overnight tonight could have clouds around as well. For temperatures just about the low 60s, then for tomorrow back up to the mid-70s, cloudy, a damp day. Rainy weather on Wednesday, maybe some thunderstorms as well before things brighten up for the rest of the week. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Baltimore. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, March 4th, 2024. That is the date a federal judge has chosen for former President Trump's trial in Washington. It's related to the charges surrounding his attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. And NPR's Jacqueline Diaz is here to tell us more. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey. Okay, so walk us through what happened today. So as you said, Judge Tanya Chutkin chose March 4th, 2024 as the start of Trump's trial in Washington, D.C. Now, this is a separate case from the ones happening in New York, Florida and Georgia. Right. Chutkin chose this date despite a strong push by Trump's attorney to get this trial pushed back all the way to 2026. That's well after the presidential election. Mm -hmm. But the judge wasn't buying it. According to NPR's Carrie Johnson, who was at the hearing, Trump's attorney John Loro got heated in his attempt to get the judge to delay the trial. Loro said that the trial date was inconsistent with Trump's right to due process. But the judge said she was going to treat Trump just like every other defendant. Uh, prosecutors wanted to see a January 2nd, 2024 start date. 
Loro did tip his hand as to the next possible steps he may take for this case. He hinted at a number of legal motions he plans to make, including a motion to dismiss the whole indictment. Okay. There are several indictments currently against former President Trump. Remind us of the charges in this indictment. So Trump has pleaded not guilty to four charges. Prosecutors allege that Trump helped orchestrate a plan to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election results. This conspiracy turned violent on January 6, 2021, when rioters took over the U.S. Capitol. His official charges include conspiracy to defraud the United States and conspiracy against rights for allegedly trying to disenfranchise American voters by trying to overturn the 2020 election. Trump and his allies continue to call these charges in every other criminal case against him, election interference and fraud. And just to remind everyone, I mean, Trump is facing three other possible criminal trials in three separate states, right? New York, Georgia and Florida and a separate civil trial also in New York that he has on the docket for next year. How does this fourth criminal case in Washington, D.C. fit into that overall timeline? So if the dates for this D.C. trial and Trump's other cases hold up, then he is in for a hectic 2024 for several reasons. He is also, of course, in the middle of a presidential election, and he's the Republican frontrunner. So Trump will be balancing his right to sit for all these trials with his presidential campaign. Now, in a statement today, a Trump spokesperson said, setting a trial date for the day before Super Tuesday shows the Biden regime is no longer hiding its nakedly political motivations. Now, get your calendar out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) On October 3rd in New York, Trump Uh will face a trial for the civil lawsuit filed by State Attorney General Letitia James. This is over claims that Trump and his company's executive team committed fraud by inflating his net worth by billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Later that month, if, this, if the date doesn't change, Trump could face his first criminal trial in Georgia. That case is tied to his and his 18 co-defendants' attempts to overturn the election results in that state. And now going into 2024, on January 15th, it's the Iowa caucuses. Right. Later that month, Trump's second civil trial in the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit will start. Okay. And the D.C. trial set for March 4th, 2024. That was NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Thank you. Simone Biles is still the GOAT. That is, the greatest of all time. The gymnastics star won her eighth U.S. championship last night. That is a record. Ten years after she first ascended to the top of her sport as a teenage prodigy. This win comes after Biles stepped back from the sport in the middle of the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, citing a need to focus on her mental health. This year, she's back as strong as ever. Kimone Felix is here. She's written about Simone Biles for The Cut. Hey, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so Simone Biles winning her eighth U.S. championship. That is a record, and we should just point out, Biles is the first American gymnast of any gender to do so. Just how big of a deal is this? This is a huge deal, especially following her removing herself from the sport after a really harrowing trial um, up against her abuser and USA Gymnastics. And just to clarify here, you were talking about the fact that in 2018, Simone Biles revealed that she had been sexually abused by former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, and she testified to a Senate committee in 2021 about that abuse, right? Yes. It means a lot to see her remove herself and then return 
again, on top of her game, continuing to dominate the arena. It goes to show that a little bit of self-care can go a really long way. What stood out to you about her performance over the weekend to the degree that you were able to see some of it? I was most surprised by her near-perfect landing of the Yurchenko double pike, which is a vault so difficult that no other woman has done it and very few men try. She continues to push herself in a way that is inspiring um, and bewildering, goes to show that she is nowhere near retirement. She has a lot more to give, and she's ready to keep pushing. Yeah, I mean, when you wrote about Simone Biles back in 2021 for The Cut, that was after a dangerous mental block, which is known in gymnastics as the twisties, forced her to withdraw from several events at the Tokyo Olympics that year. And I'm curious, what stood out to you in your conversations with her then about how she thought about herself, how she thought about her sport? You could tell that she was really injured, that there was something going on inside that she didn't even really have the ability to articulate, something that is communicated through affect, through the way that uh, her body sat in the chair, through the way that she was sometimes unable to look at me as she recalled some of the worst moments of her life. And anyone who is incredibly ambitious, who has a sport or a skill or a craft that they care a lot about, knows the pain that comes with feeling like you're not able to show up as your full self within your work because of something that happened to you that was not your fault, that you didn't have control over. I mean, you spent quite a bit of time immersed in her world and getting to know Simone Biles for that profile back in 2021. What have you been thinking about in the years since and specifically while watching her return to competition this year? I've been thinking a lot about that very key moment towards the end of the profile where her resolve breaks and she starts to cry a little bit. To me, that was one of the bravest moments um, and one of the most powerful moments that we spent together because it showed that she was both in touch with her emotions and that she was willing to be vulnerable with the public to show them just how she'd been affected by all of this. It's made me really invest in vulnerability in my own practices Mm -hmm. in considering that what it means to be good or successful or competitive actually means that you are the most vulnerable with yourself and with the people around you while still holding on to that competitive resolve that allows you to get up and really go for it every day. Given what we saw from Simone Biles over the weekend, do you think it's likely that we're going to see her at the Olympics again in Paris in 2024? I think it's incredibly likely. She is on top of her game. She seems to feel a lot more confident in her body, feels a lot more confident in the air. And I think she would love an opportunity to go back to the Olympics while being able to actually revel in that safeness in her body and to know that when she goes up for the competition that she'll actually be able to land Kimone Felix telling us about Simone Biles after she's won her record-breaking 8th U.S. All-Around Gymnastics Championship. Kimone, thank you so much. Thank you. And now to my unsung hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain, sharing the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Lynn Fainsilber-Katz. 
One day in 2022, she went to the beach. She was carrying a lot of things and was feeling weighed down. I had a chair and a beach umbrella and a cooler. It was just really hard to climb over all the rocks, and I was struggling. I got to one part that I just paused because it was a big step down, and I was a little bit off-center because of all the things I was carrying. And as I stood there... uh, young kind of 30 something year old man came over to me and said, can I help you? And I said, sure. (laughs) And he took some of the things I was carrying and gave me his hand and helped me come down that stair. And I was just so grateful. And I think that's because, you know, as I age, I'm feeling a little bit more vulnerable and not as strong and able to do the things that I want to do. And so, you know, at that moment, I thought, maybe this is not something I can do anymore, be on my own doing it. And, you know, having that kind of help and support at just that right moment, sort of felt like I can continue in the life that I want to have, that I've had and want to continue to have. And, you know, even if it's hard, that there'll be people there. If you feel like there'll be somebody there who will help, then you can push the limits a little more. And you can maintain the joy that you want to maintain in your life. So that's why I'm grateful to him, because he helped me maintain that joy. Lynn Fain Silberkatz lives in Seattle, Washington. She's also the mom of Hidden Brain producer Ryan Katz, who recorded this interview with her. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace, as more people and businesses move to Texas every year, the demand for energy increases. So what will the state do to keep up? Business news coming up at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Wall Street recovered some of its losses from earlier this month. Today, the Dow and the S&P gained more than six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq picked up more than eight-tenths of a percent. A British biotech company with offices in Waltham and Cambridge is being purchased by a five, uh, in a $5.7 billion deal. The Boston Globe reports Washington, D.C.-based tech company Danaher is buying life science supply manufacturer Abcam. Abcam is expected to operate as a standalone brand within Danaher's life sciences division. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. 
so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. We're in for overcast skies overnight tonight. Should be foggy down to the low 60s tomorrow. A lot like today, patchy fog, some light rain, temperatures in the mid-70s again. Wednesday, not too much of a change. Gray skies, a little bit closer to 80 degrees. 73 degrees in Boston at 621. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The United Nations is on a tight timeline to pull all of its peacekeepers out of Mali by the end of this year, at a time when ISIS and other terrorist groups expand their control over parts of the country. There's also concern that Mali's government is relying more on Russian mercenaries. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.N. Special Representative for Mali, El Ghassim Wan, has a difficult task. He has to shut down a large and expensive U.N. peacekeeping operation, even as terrorist groups gain ground. This is a very complex undertaking. The mission was built over a period of 10 years, and we have to close it in six months. Uh, And Mali, as you know, is landlocked, infrastructure is limited, and insecurity is He says he's been coordinating the drawdown with authorities in Mali, who will now have to take the lead in protecting civilians. A recent U.N. report paints a bleak picture of the situation on the ground, though. It says the country remains in political turmoil, while ISIS and other terrorist groups have nearly doubled the territory they control in just the last year. The U.N. panel of experts also says there's been widespread sexual violence by Mali's armed forces and their foreign partners. That includes Russian mercenaries. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield expressed alarm about that, saying it was a mistake for Mali's transitional government to close down the U.N. mission known as MINUSMA. MINUSMA's withdrawal limits the ability of the international community to protect civilians from the predations of Wagner, whose activities contribute to greater insecurity in the country. Wagner is the Russian mercenary group whose leader was killed in a plane crash in Russia last week. It's been implicated in deadly attacks on civilians in Mali. Mali's transitional government, which came to power after a coup, has leaned heavily on them after the departure of French forces last year. Russia's ambassador, Dmitry Polyansky, says he knows Russia's partnership with Mali keeps Western powers up at night. Speaking through an interpreter, he accused some in the West of what he called neo-colonial approaches. So we should pay no heed to their colonial phantom pains. Russia, for its part, will continue to provide Mali and other interested African partners with comprehensive assistance on a bilateral, equal, and mutually respectful basis. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is wary about Russia's influence in the region and says the people of Mali deserve peace. If war were to break out, it would again unleash unspeakable, unthinkable devastation on the Malian people, who have already endured so much needless suffering. And she says it would open the doors to ISIS and other terrorist groups to spread their influence in the region. She calls that a recipe for disaster. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. <laughs> 
I'm Lisa Mullins. This is WBUR. Poison ivy is expected to be one of the big winners as the climate changes. The dreaded three-leafed vine is growing faster, bigger, and becoming even more toxic. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports that some New Englanders are noticing the change. So here I'm just using two garden forks, sticking them in, in the ground. It's a slow aerobic kind of exercise. Peter Barron's job is removing poison ivy, and his promise is he'll do it with no chemicals. His clients know him by his nickname, Pesky Pete. Today he's working in a wooded backyard in Harvard, Massachusetts, using just his hands, a few tools, and gloves that go up over his elbows. Someone said to me, cow birthing gloves. I was like, oh yeah, cow birthing gloves, that's what I'll call them from now on. Even with the gloves, Pesky Pete says he gets that itchy, blistering rash about 10 times a year. But unlike most, he loves this plant. Every year, I always take pictures of the poison ivy as it's blooming. Three bitty, red, shiny leaves. When I first started, it was May 10th or May 11th. And I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to do this. 14 years later, he says, the season starts almost a month earlier. In 2023, my first sightings of poison ivy was on April 18th. His guess is that warmer weather explains the shift. Scientists have also noticed changes. One team in the 1990s turned the woods into their laboratory. They built towers that could pump carbon dioxide into the air. Around large circular forest plots, they pumped in enough of the gas to simulate what they thought 2050 would be like. Sort of a cylinder of the future is the way I like to call it. William Schlesinger is an emeritus professor at Duke University. He says the plants grew faster with more CO2 too, since plants essentially use the gas as food. But poison ivy was the speediest of all, growing 70% faster than without the extra carbon dioxide. Oh, it's, it was the max. It, it topped uh, the growth of everything else. That's not all. The researchers discovered the poison ivy became more toxic and the individual leaves got bigger with more CO2. Now, Jackie Mohan, an ecologist at the University of Georgia, is looking at how poison ivy responds to warmer soil. My heavens to Betsy, it's taking off in terms of growth. She says it's partly because a warmth-loving fungus helps feed poison ivy roots. Plus, the vines don't need a sturdy trunk or branches. They can put all their energy into getting bigger. Bigger and nastier. But is this happening out in nature right now? Mohan and Schlesinger say they think so, but... It's a remarkably understudied species. It's a nasty plant to work on. In the suburbs west of Boston, Dr. Lewis Kushner sees just how miserable it can be. Some people will have a tremendous allergic reaction to poison ivy, and others just don't seem to mount any allergic reaction at all. He works with 10 dermatologists. Every one of us sees it every week. Uh, And I mean the kind of cases where people can't sleep and are covered with blisters. The kind of poison ivy that takes people to the emergency rooms, that has been getting more common. He suspects that's due to the pandemic nudging people into their gardens and onto trails. In the town of Lincoln, Gwyn Loud has noticed the hikers and the poison ivy. Loud is on the board of the Lincoln Land Conservation Trust. The leaf edges are smooth, and it's got one center vein. With gloves on, she pulls a bit of poison ivy, now deep green since it's later in the summer. So here's some right here. Are you able to 
quantify how much it's grown in the 55 years you've lived here? There is a lot more all over the place. And she's noticed another change, too. The leaves can be the size of a book. Look at these huge leaves down here. Huge! Loud says she wishes there was hard data, but from what she's seeing, it's not good news for the roughly 80% of people who are allergic to poison ivy. And scientists worry it could disrupt the delicate balance in the forest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. You can test your skill at identifying poison ivy with our poison ivy quiz at WBUR.org. And we'll have more stories on the consequences of the changing climate in New England all this week here on All Things Considered and on WBUR's Morning Edition. So listen again tomorrow. Hurricane Center says Idalia remains just shy of hurricane strength. The center of the storm is now just 35 miles off the western tip of Cuba. Hurricane warnings have been expanded on the Gulf Coast of Florida. We'll continue to follow that story through the evening and tomorrow as well. Chris Sale takes the mound at Fenway tonight as the Astros go with Javier Christian Javier for the first game of a three-game set, 7-10 start time. 72 degrees in the Boston area. The time is 6.30.